Recording in progress. Hey, how's everybody doing today? Hope you all are doing good. Good to see you. Uh, welcome, everybody. Come on in, get comfortable, and uh, say something to the chat. Let me know that you can uh, hear me okay. All right, and uh, give me a couple. Let me hit a couple buttons here. All right, uh, let's see here. Uh, let me look into the chat and see who is hanging out with me today. Uh, and make sure it's open. There we go. Okay, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate that. See, Anthony, everybody ignores me, Anthony. Anthony doesn't ignore me. I appreciate you for that. Thank you. All right, so uh, let's let's jump in. Let's talk about uh, what's happening right now with the market and uh, just some uh, things that uh, can benefit you. What I'll do is I'll give you some things I've been sort of noticing and thinking about, and uh, and then you guys can give me questions, and uh, and I will answer as many questions as we can. Uh, we do this every single Tuesday, in case you don't know, and uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern, that's our time. So, um, uh, all right, so let me share with you something that I saw recently that I kind of want to start the conversation off with. Um, and actually, you know what? Instead of me jumping right to the business of the business, uh, I let me go in and uh, let me not be rude and say hello, Ian and Elhaj and Yvonne from Milwaukee. Milwaukee. I'm going to be speaking in Milwaukee this week at the um, Hip Hop Week. You have a Hip Hop Week event this week. Uh, I think I think it's Thursday. No, wait. No, Wednesday. Well, I fly, I, actually, I drive up Wednesday and I speak on Thursday. So if you live in Milwaukee, you can see we, we can hang out there. Also, um, Los Angeles. Los Angeles is September 8th. So I'll be speaking in L.A. at that time. Uh, VoiceWalkins.com is where uh, Michael puts a lot of the information. So um, feel free to do that. And uh, hello, Veronica Brooks. Good to see you. And uh, Yolanda Baker and Franz. Good to see you. Okay. So, uh, all right. So let me, uh, how's Dr. Alicia? Thank you for asking, Pacola. She's doing very well. Thank you. Uh, yeah, our family, we were um, battling the Rona this weekend. <laughs> it was a big battle. You should have seen it. It's like wrestling with dragon, but. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of vitamins and, and, and making breakfast every day, you know, for Alicia and making sure she was okay, checking temperatures and buying COVID tests and all kinds of stuff. And, and it was, uh, it, it worked out pretty well. All right. So let's see. Yeah. So last week was a mission. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, if you're in the stock options training camp, uh, just know that we have our next class meeting tomorrow night, Wednesday night at, uh, 7 PM Eastern. So, uh, if you still want to join, um, I sent out an email this morning, or you can also go to the Telegram, DrVoiceTelegram.com. There should be a link there where you can join the uh, training camp. Everything's recorded, so it's all yours for life. So even if you can't make it to class, it's still yours. And also, you know, we're okay with you sharing your membership with other people. So literally, you know, you can bring somebody and have them just share the screen with you, whatever, whatever the case may be. All right, so let me um, start off the conversation with... Uh, with some things that I um, that I've observed in terms of of the market as of late, um, there was an article that I read this morning where they were basically laying out kind of warnings for uh, American consumers about this economy. So me, and um... and what I'm going to do is kind of sort of give you my quick overview of the things that uh, that you may want to be concerned about and kind of be on the lookout for. And then what I'll do is I'll read this article as well so they can kind of give their their lookout and their warning of, of what what could you know be around the corner. Um, in my mind, uh, this is a kind of a funny economy in the sense that 
uh, a lot of the stock market's done really well, and a lot of people don't really see this as a bull market. They don't really see this as uh, as a, as a consistent and reliable uptrend. They kind of see this as uh, a situation where they're waiting for the other shoe to fall. Now, last week though, a lot that that other shoe kind of fell. Last week you had a really rough week. You had several days in a row of of consistent market declines. Uh, that was actually a good thing because you know everything's kind of being pulled back to normal, which means that you have this opportunity to go in and buy some of your favorite stocks at a discount price. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, there is there are some concerns about things like the housing market. Uh, I know that housing is is kind of an enigma. The cost of housing has gone way up. Uh, also, the um, commercial real estate market you know, could just sort of pop at any time. That's kind of a, a big fat mess waiting to happen. And it could affect banks. If that spills over into banks, that could cause significant economic challenges. But what I want you to do is I don't want you to overreact. I don't want you to panic <laughs> because, you know, I, I, was, I was talking to a young guy the other day. Um, there's a there's a guy who's going to actually join us in the Black Business School very soon for a, a class. His name's Michael Roberts and he and his brother, uh, we're in CNN for uh, running uh, a company worth over a billion dollars. And so, Mike, I would say he's a billionaire, but I don't know if he's technically worth a billion dollars, but it doesn't matter. I know his companies are worth over a billion dollars. And Mike and I were talking and um, and we're good friends. We went to Ghana together and stuff, and he's going to come and teach in the Black Business School. Uh, I think it's kind of cool to learn from a billionaire or somebody who's seen hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions and all that and owns dozens of hotels and all that stuff. And, uh, and so he connected me to speak with this young person that he knows. And I was talking to this young guy and he was asking me about things like um, BRICS and the state of the U.S. dollar and and whether things are going to crash. And I said, yeah, the, all these things can happen. All these things happen all the time. BRICS is a threat, but it's a long term threat. It's not, uh, you know, the, the headlines tend to be driven by these very dramatic stories that, you know, because I, I, I don't know if it, it's, it's funny. It almost reminds me of like like rap, you know, when you had Ja Rule versus 50 Cent and who's going to win and, 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 you know, all this other stuff and people like that drama. But there's nothing dramatic about any of that in my view in the sense that there's always um, changing headwinds in, in the economy, in the global economy. The United States is still the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, our financial markets are powerful, liquid. Uh, you know, the dollar's not going to collapse tomorrow. There are longer-term problems. So if you say went 50, 50 years down the pike, then yeah, you might see some of these things develop. But in terms of what's going to happen this year, next year, the next five years, next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, all these things are really not a major factor. But one thing that I did see uh, was this uh, piece. Let me see if I can find it here. They said, uh, this is in uh, CNBC. They said, as economists point to a soft landing for the U.S. economy, here are financial risks for consumers to watch. Forecasts for recession have turned uh, to predictions of a soft landing. They could instead, uh, wait, predictions, a soft landing could instead be in store for the U.S. economy. Even without a downturn in the forecast, experts say there are still risks for consumers to watch. The forecast for the post-pandemic U.S. economy once called for a recession. Uh, now many experts are backing off those predictions. So a lot of experts that were predicting recessions are not predicting recessions anymore. Uh, in the latest about face, 69% of economists surveyed by the National Association for Business Economics said they see a soft landing on the horizon. That means they expect that everything's going to kind of just play itself out. It's going to flesh out without any major drama. That's a good thing. 
Uh, that's a significant shift from March's survey, according to NABE, when a similar share of respondents leaned toward a recession. So in March, just in March, that's just five, five months ago, they were saying recession, recession, recession. Now they're saying, oh, no, 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 no recession, no recession. This gives you an idea of how imprecise of a science economics is. You know, anybody who thinks that uh, that being an economist or being a financial expert means you can you know, directly and accurately predict every stock, every economic condition, every possibility. People that think that are people who just don't know anything about the field. They just don't understand it. Um, you know, things change. It changes like the weather. And so what's basically happened is a lot of things have changed. Apparently, uh, what, what I've seen to be the driving force that sort of kept us out of recession is actually you. <laughs> American consumers are so good at spending money that they were shocked by how Americans still keep spending even when they don't have the money available. And I, and I have my theories on this. I talk about that a lot in my book, The, uh, the Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. Uh, I don't think you should participate in any of that, but, you know, uh, in, in terms of that spending culture. But uh, that's what drives America, the American economy. That's why they need you working. They need you spending. That's those are the two things that they're going to always push people to do. And then really, if you look at companies like BlackRock buying up all the houses and all this stuff, they also want you renting. They want you paying rent um, so that your wealthy landlords can um, can continue to compile wealth. And unfortunately, it'll be on your back. And I hate to say that, but that's kind of what it is. Uh, because I've explained to you on many occasions that unfortunately capitalism at its limit when you don't uh, prepare yourself or prepare your children, it turns into slavery. It's just like slavery. It's a, it's a variant. In fact, capitalism isn't a variant of slavery. Capitalism was here when slavery was here. It's just that slaves just happen to make great products, unfortunately, and it's kind of crazy. It's sad. I mean, it's really messed up, right? But that's literally what, um, you know, what, what I see. And, and so uh, I see Lewis is from Louisville. Louisville's making me sad right now. I just uh, talked this morning to somebody I know who uh, her, the father of her child just got shot in Louisville. And apparently there are people dying uh, everywhere because I had another cousin in Louisville who just died from a drug overdose. So a lot of death, a lot of, um, when we talk about bad culture and things like that, don't just think that this is stuff that I talk about and write about. This is stuff that I'm literally hearing about, seeing and experiencing on a daily basis, literally in my own family, in my own space. And that's one, and, and, and really that's why in my book, I talk so much about culture and it sort of explained that you can't really build wealth and build these million dollar empires and these amazing businesses when you just have this this horrible slave culture that's, that's become very, very violent. Uh, in my hometown of Louisville, you know, so many young people I talk to are telling me that, that it's like the killing fields. You know, I know another young person I mentor who just moved out of the country just to get away from the gun violence. So, you know, um, so I, I, I just really think um, there are some cultural problems that I think have to be sort of dealt with in your own space in order for you to be in a position to, uh, you know, to get where you want to get to. Uh, it took me until last night to realize you're on a new page, but I found it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on a new Instagram page. Um, uh, my Instagram is Dr. Boyce Finance. Apparently, my big mouth keeps getting me, like, <laughs> blocked and shadow banned and stuff like that because I talk about race and economics, but I, I won't stop. This is because I think it's very important, very important conversation. But I am on Instagram at Dr. Boyce Finance, so feel free to follow me there. All right, so let's see here. A it says a recession consists of at least two consecutive quarters of a decline in gross domestic product or GDP. Uh, it, it, so they said also still some experts are holding tight to their recession predictions. NABE found that 20% of those surveyed believe the U.S. economy is either currently in a recession or will enter one in 2023. 
Okay. In recent weeks, some Wall Street firms have revised their previous recession calls. Bank of America now says a soft landing is the most likely scenario. JP Morgan has said a soft landing is possible, though elevated recession risks remain. Meanwhile, average Americans are not as optimistic, with 71% describing the U.S. economy as either not good or poor, according to a recent Quinnipiac University poll. In comparison, just 28% of respondents said the economy is either excellent or good. So I ask you, I ask you, uh, you know, all of us who are in here, uh, if you were to use uh, one of three words to describe the economy, how, which one would you use? Excellent, good, or poor? Or let's say excellent, or let's say good, let's use four, actually, let's use four. Excellent, good, average, or poor? What would you say? What, 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 what answer would you give me uh, in the chat uh, of what you think the economy is doing right now based on what I just said? What do you think? Okay, Gregory says good. Okay, Otis says fair. Fair was not one of the answers, Otis. You're breaking the rules, but that's okay, Otis. I love you. All right, uh, let's see. Errol says good. Uh, Aisha says good. Okay, Pecola, good. Uh, Kendall says average. Okay, uh, Dorothy, uh, average. Uh, uh, Keyshawn says poor. Okay, um, C-Dub says good to excellent. Karen Dorsey says poor. Okay, so the estimates are kind of all over the place. And let me just tell you this. All of you are right. Every one of you is correct. Every single one of you is correct. How can you say that, boys? That sounds crazy. Well, you know, I'm sorry. I'm a professor. I'm confident saying things that sound crazy because I can explain what I mean. The economy is a big, big body of economic activity. The economy. So, so you can point to the absolute worst economic condition in the history of the United States, and you're still going to find people who are who are, were making money during that time that they'd never made before, making more money than, than ever, right? You, you can always find uh, good economic outcomes, even in a bad economy. You can always find bad outcomes in a good economy. Uh, you know, and so, so effectively, what's really happening is you, you can think of the economy almost like a big city. If, you, if, if somebody says, well, is New York City a good place to live? And someone says, oh, it's great. It's amazing. There's so much stuff to do. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, but maybe if you live in a bad neighborhood in New York where there's a lot of crime and terrible things are happening and, you know, and, or you're in just a bad situation, then New York isn't so great, right? Or you, or if someone says, oh, you know, would you want to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma? And someone says, oh, no, Tulsa's terrible. It's a horrible place to live. Well, if you're like a millionaire in Tulsa, it can be pretty good, right? In fact, if you're a millionaire almost anywhere, life is always good. So the reason that you gave, you all gave up, uh, of, of estimates of the economy that were kind of all over the place is because everybody's in a different situation. And so what I've really encouraged you to do, particularly because I love just talking to black people first, not that everybody else doesn't matter. And we have people in here that are not black, so let's not be mean to them. But, uh, but really, I talk to you first. I'm encouraging you to look at the economy as this big body and, and, and say, Okay, where can I position myself and my family so that I'm going to be good no matter what the economy is doing, that there could be another Great Depression and my family is going to be okay because we're economically fortified and we know how to spot opportunities and we do basic things like save and invest our money, right? Because literally, there's always a bull market somewhere. I think, uh, who, who says it? Uh, Kramer says it. That's his statement. I love I love that. Uh, catchphrase. He says, there's always a bull market somewhere. I'll help you find it, right? Yeah, there's always a bull market somewhere. There's always in the middle of even a, a sea of dead stocks that are dying and getting hurt. There's always those few stocks that just, that are shooting through the roof. Those are hard to pick out. It's hard to do that, but they do exist. So effectively, 
this economy is distorted. It's it's distorted uh, because America is a country that unfortunately has a lot of inequality. So when they say gross domestic product is up, the economy is doing great, everything's wonderful. Well, yeah, the guys that are on MSNBC and the women as well, they're going to say that because most of those individuals have money invested in the stock market. And so they're looking at the stock market booming and they're saying, oh, everything's wonderful. But remember, these are not people who are working nine to five jobs where they're looking at the size of their paycheck. Almost every indicator I could show you right now shows that wages of workers have been going down while the cost of everything has been going up. Workers' wages either have been down or flat, or they if they moved up, they moved up very, very little. And, and so, so navigating this economy is something that does require a little bit of, of, of intentionality in terms of saying, where do I want to be in this economic space? Okay. So, uh, so, so it's like when my grandmother used to talk about the Great Depression, she said, I don't even, I don't, I don't, I didn't know anything about a Great Depression because we were always poor. The Great Depression didn't suddenly take us from middle class to poverty. We were, we went from being poor to being poor. Like it was, you know, we couldn't get any poorer than we were. Right. So uh, and a lot of your families have that same experience. So uh, so so right now it looks like overall they're saying that the job market is pretty strong. So they said that here's three key areas <clears throat> that economic experts are watching that will affect the Americans money. Uh, one, the job market is mostly strong. They said the U.S. would have already fallen into a recession if not for the strong job market, according to 77 percent of NABE survey respondents. However, the latest jobs report shows that le shows less job growth than expected for July. So uh, job growth is not what it used to be. The job market is less strong compared to the early part of this year, but still fairly robust given our economic cycle, said Mervin Jabari, uh, NABE Economic Policy Survey Chair. Uh, meanwhile, many workers are ch were changing jobs more in the past 12 months, so the opportunities for that have cooled somewhat. So when you went from a space where people were able to quiet quit and still keep their job, those days are kind of gone. Now you've gone from a tight labor market to uh, to an easier labor, I don't want to say easier, from a tight labor market where it was harder to get employees to a uh, different kind of labor, a looser labor market where employees kind of compete for jobs a little bit. Because if you remember a few months ago, a few weeks ago anyway, they had all those tech layoffs, right? So now you had you have a lot of tech people looking for opportunities. And so uh, so this this balance of power between the worker and the and the employer kind of just waffles back and forth, and it can change a lot even during the course of one year. Number two, inflation will take time to subside. It may take more than 12 months for inflation to subside, according to 43% of NABE survey respondents. Just 7% said the pace of price growth will, will go down by this fall. So just 7% said that uh, that the pace of price growth will go down this fall. They did not say prices will go down. They said the pace of growth will go down, right? So that means that you, you will be increasing at a decreasing rate, okay? They, they, they call that um, uh, uh, acceleration, right? So, so your, your prices are not going to keep going up uh, faster. They're going to sort of still be going up, but just not as much as before. Uh, people are generally in agreement that the inflation rate has come down significantly and is likely to continue to go down. But maybe the speed at which it goes down is not what you would expect. Hmm. Okay, so inflation is the rate of change. And they said the rate of change is going to go down. But there, it's almost like they're saying that the rate of change of the rate of change is going, okay. 
forget it. I'm not, I'm being a mathematician, right? I'm trying to sort through what they're trying to say here. All right, so let's keep going. All right, so uh, so let's see. They said that that doesn't mean prices have to go down. That just means that they're going, going to go up slower, it says Ted Jenkins, right? Which is exactly what I was just telling you. Uh, three, interest rate rates may stay elevated. The Federal Reserve's July rate hike took benchmark borrowing rates to the highest levels in 22 years. Experts expect those rates will likely stay high and could go higher to curb inflation. For consumers with outstanding debts, that may pose challenges as those balances become more expensive. So that means if you have a credit card, uh, if you haven't noticed yet, uh, your credit card company may have some provision that is going to increase uh, the rate that you pay on that card. Right? They probably have something in there that, where they can you know, pull a little bit more money out of you as kind of like a rental fee for the money that you're holding. So um, reducing someone's credit card balances might, you know, this that might be a good way to save and invest. In fact, I would almost argue that um, if I have a choice between paying my card debt versus investing more, I would at least balance between the two. Now, now the benefit of investing is that even if you don't make uh, the same rate of return that you're paying on your debt, investing gives you that liquidity piece. Liquidity is sometimes liquidity is more important than wealth. What is liquidity? Liquidity is access to cash. It's the ability to get cash when you need it. So sometimes getting just getting cash is what you need to do you're not even worried about long-term you know net worth implications you're not worried about whether it's debt or if it's money you own or money you borrow sometimes you just need the cash because my car broke down i need eight hundred dollars to get it fixed i need access to that cash right do you get what i'm saying give me a yes if you follow what i'm saying so a lot of businesses actually fail due to a lack of liquidity in fact more businesses fail due to a lack of liquidity than there are they fail due to a lack of profitability Profitability is important, but profitability is longer term, right? Well, actually, really, wealth is long term. Profitability is more medium term. Liquidity is right now. Liquidity means, for example, here's an example of, an, of a situation where liquidity will kick you in the butt. Imagine if you own a house that's worth $10 million, and you, but you have to pay a, a utility bill that's $750, or you're going to lose your house, and you got to pay it by Tuesday. Well, it doesn't matter that your house is, house is worth a lot of money unless somebody can help you get access to liquidity. If you don't have income or you don't have any cash available, or let's say you go to the bank and you say, hey, I got to pay this bill by Tuesday or they're going to take my house or whatever. Let's just, this is, I'm, I'm pretending here. Um, and they say, oh, well, fill out these forms and you might get a loan, but we won't be able to get the money to you for another four weeks. Well, in that case, um, that sucks because time is not on your side. And, and as I mentioned to you, when you're talking about finance, right, and, and money and economics, there are these different variables that I want you to keep in mind as you understand how economics works. And it's almost like a family of concepts that kind of define, uh, you know, stock markets and everything else. And so some of those concepts might be uh, profitability, uh, risk, um, asset liability, cash flow, liquidity. That's another one. We just talked about that. Or time. Time is a member of that economic family, too. Time shows up to the family barbecue also. And it's like, hey, I matter, too. Right. Because when you're looking at how, uh, you know, how assets are valued or you're looking at how stock, where stock prices come from and stuff like that, um, time is always right in there. Time's right there in the mix, because in that particular example where you have this 10 million dollar house, but you need money by next Tuesday. Well, then what's worked against you is time, right? So someone may say, well, you know what? 
Uh, you owe $750 uh, by next Tuesday. Um, I'll loan you the money, but but I, I want you to pay me 40% interest. Well, I mean, to some extent, what you really kind of bought is some time, right? You're, you're, they're selling you time. They're like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll create this little financial time machine. I'll get the money to you right away, or I'll get this liquidity to you, but you're going to have to pay for that. So you're buying both. You, you could say you're buying liquidity, or you're buying time, or you're buying both. Or maybe if you have to pay a massive fee to the bank to get a little more time, right? Time is money. Right? When we talk about stock options, like tomorrow night we're doing the training camp. Feel free to join us. Just go to boycewalkins.com. The link is right there. Um, you know, when you talk about stock options, time is everything in stock options. Because all options sort of do is they put you in the game. They give you an opportunity to make money or to protect your money. But there's always a time limit. There's always a time limit. So with stock options, I think of it almost like when I go stay in a hotel room. When I stay in a hotel room, they say, well, how much time? Do you want to have this room? Because during that particular time, this is your room and you get to pretend like you're the owner. And during that time, that's your territory. You can mess the room up. You can you go in and out. You can tell you can kick people out if they don't want to uh, if, if you don't want them in your room. But once your time is up, you got you got to go. You have no rights anymore. Right. So the more time I want, what do I have to do? I have to pay more money. Right. So the same thing is really true with options. Uh, a lot of times it's true in business. So uh, so going back to what I said originally, my original premise that uh, it's better to pay, in my view, most of the time, not investment advice. I have to make that clear. But but this is what I the way I view things. Um, it's better sometimes to pay off high interest credit card debt than it is to immediately invest all your money in the stock market. Like I don't know how much sense it makes to invest a ton of money, but have a bunch of credit card debt just sort of lurking over your back like a big angry gorilla ready to smack you upside the head. Because that credit card debt is gonna take that 14% or whatever every single year, no matter what happens. The stock market may pay you, it may not pay you. But the reason I don't think it makes sense to go all the way in the other direction where you don't put any toward the stock market and you put all your money toward the credit cards is because of liquidity, right? If I pay that credit card balance down, I might think I have liquidity, right? Because I've got this credit card and the balance used to be, you know, $8,000. Now I paid it down to $2,000. So I've got an extra $6,000 of liquidity or so I think. Well, what if the bank just decides to take that liquidity away? What if the bank just says, you know, conditions have changed. Uh, We don't see you as a valid credit risk anymore. We're going to go ahead and take this card back, right? Or we're going to reduce your balance. And credit card companies in many cases can do that. And uh, in fact, uh, credit card companies, some of them, look at your whole credit score, any change in your credit score period, even if it has nothing to do with them, even if you've been paying them on time every single month, they might, you might have paid somebody else late and they might still say, I, we don't want you to pay us late. So we're going to go ahead and, 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 and reduce your credit line or whatever. Right. So, so ultimately I'm a believer in, um, in never forgetting that a bird in the hand sometimes can be better than 10 birds in the bush and having access to some money in case something goes wrong is a really important part of providing the security for yourself that you deserve. And that's why I also encourage you to be creative and consider things like your relationships and marriage and all that as part of your economic plan. Um, uh, there's so many interesting conversations that I've seen. My wife and I have had some. We're, we're going to do a pillow talk pretty soon about one of them. With this lady said she wants to go on these $300 dates, which I thought was really funny. But but anyway, speaking of that, there was some another article that I read, and I'm going to share this with you. Uh, it had to do with um, with a high cost of marriage, and uh, and I, I got man, I got some funny stuff to tell you about that. 
All right, so let me tell you what this article is uh, is titled. Let me find it here. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, yeah, they said, uh, here we go. They said, you don't have to borrow money for your wedding. Uh, they said, instead, uh, you'll have a boxed macaroni and cheese marriage. Okay. Uh, they said, the price of getting married has ballooned amid sticky inflation, and some couples are footing the bill with personal loans. Personal loans are more expensive after interest rate hikes. Of course, uh, the average rate uh, on a personal loan is 11.29% as of August 16th compared to 2.28, or sorry, 10.28% in 2022. While personal loans can be cheaper than higher interest credit cards, experts urge couples to consider other ways to fund a wedding. Uh, they said driven by inflation, the average cost of a wedding ceremony and reception uh, is $30,000 uh, in 2022, up from 28000 the previous year. Uh, personal loans have become more expensive. We, we mentioned that. Um, they said what you're really looking to do is setting yourself up for a box of macaroni and cheese marriage, according to an economic analyst at Bankrate. I don't know what that, she means by that. Uh, personal loans typically have a fixed interest rate that, depending on the borrower's credit profile and income, can be cheaper than higher interest credit cards, right? Uh, nuptial loans are a hard place to start a relationship. Uh, I am wholeheartedly against any couple pulling out a loan for a wedding said Los Angeles-based wedding expert and planner Jason Reed. I think that is such a hard place to start in your relationship with your partner. Uh, and, and that is true, right? Uh, you know, financial problems are a big source of divorce and stress and everything else. And, um, you know, I, I but, but again, there, nothing in finance, in my view, is a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I maxed out the credit card to get married to my wife, and, and she wanted to spend less than me. But I said, don't worry, you know, we, we can pay this back. And um, and we spent some money and we we had some debt and uh, and she's less comfortable with debt than I am. So uh, we paid it off and it took maybe about nine months to a year or something to pay it off. And so um, so I don't think debt is always a bad thing in that particular context. But I think it does come down to this idea that if you have debt that's kind of hanging over your head, for the next five or 10 years, or literally you have some people that get divorced three years later and they're still paying off the debt from the marriage. I think that obviously says that maybe you overdosed on the debt, right? So, so, so debt is not always a terrible thing. Debt can even be used for something that doesn't actually make you money. Everything that you do with money in my view, doesn't always have to make you money. I think the goal is, uh, is obviously to be financially secure, but really on the bigger goal is to have a quality life. And so I don't think you have to be a stickler here. Uh, but they did suggest here, they said parents and in-laws can pool funds to help cover the wedding. But more couples are paying for the wedding uh, themselves. Uh, there's a couple here, they said, we're paying for it ourselves. And I really did not want to go into debt for a wedding. Uh, there are many ways couples can have their special day without a new loan or pulling out a second mortgage at it. Re being transparent with your partner and whoever else is helping you fund or plan the wedding will avoid adding more stressors to an already high stakes process. Uh, they said, one, vendors may offer payment plans. Most vendors have their own payment structure, structures. You should ask about payment plans during the hiring process, okay? Credit card rewards may be useful. Some credit cards offer rewards a couple can later use for their honeymoons, okay? Nice. Uh, however, before you pull out your credit card and start swiping, ask about your vendor's preferred payment method. Most do not accept credit cards, okay? Interesting. Leverage higher savings rates. They said, if your wedding date is further out in the calendar, consider savings options to help you grow your money faster. The top 1% of savings accounts had a 4.71% rate. Um, and so they're saying save. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit, so, something else about uh, my, 
you know, again, sometimes I, I go into the uncle voice mode to kind of talk about things with a blend of experience and um, expertise, right? So the uncle voice mode, uncle voice in me says this, it says that before you uh, pick someone as a partner, I think that you, some sort of financial conversation or financial observation is absolutely critical because it's not just about knowing what you're getting into, right? Knowing, you know, like, like I'm, I was really shocked by how many people start sleeping with somebody and don't even have any idea, idea how, you know, in debt they might be or whatever. Because once you start, once you start messing around with somebody sleeping with them, like you're, a lot of times you're like attached, you know? Like, so, so again, but I'm not judging. It's just, it's just such a tricky process. Mother nature just tricks us, right? We get all excited about how pretty she is and we don't ask the right questions until after the fact, but that's love, love. Uh, I studied the biochemistry of love and what it does to your brain and just give up. It's it, you're, you're, you're literally out of your freaking mind. So, um, so anyway, um, it, so it's not a rational process. That's my point. But if it were a rational process, it might make sense to really try to have some sort of financial conversation or financial observation before you do that. And I say this in the sense that um, some people may not want to talk about money. Some people may lie to you, uh, but your actions tell me more than what you actually say. So uh, if, if we're just talking about money or I just watch how you behave when you get money, that tells me a lot about not just where you might be financially, but uh, your financial personality. Everybody has a different financial personality. And I talk about this kind of thing. I wrote a book about it years ago when I was on the faculty of Syracuse called Financial Lovemaking. And, and so, so understanding your financial personality can go a really long way because I can then decide if our personalities are compatible, just like I would when it comes to our relationship. Uh, and I can tell you, my wife and I, have different financial personalities. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more into risk taking. I was an entrepreneur. She's never been, she wasn't an entrepreneur until we got together. And now she's sort of a hybrid between the two, but she's more conservative than I am. And I made a decision that her financial personality was a good complement to my financial personality. Now, if I didn't appreciate her perspective, then I'd probably have to marry someone else or consider marrying somebody else uh, because being an entrepreneur kind of puts you in kind of a different sort of space. Entrepreneurs take risks, and sometimes the things you do cost a lot of money, and, and a person who hasn't seen that before can get very, very nervous. Uh, but but really scoping and, and figuring out that financial personality, I think, will go a long way because that will help you understand uh, a, a, lot, a lot more about what you're getting into, how decisions are going to be made, um, how much of a, of a conflict, potential conflict you're going to have, especially if money is scarce. I really think it's easier if there's plenty of money around. You know, that's why I'm a big believer in everybody just learn how to make money and manage their own money. And that way everybody can help each other out. But every situation isn't like that, right? Some situations, money is very tight. Money is very scarce. So when you're moving in sync with scarce resources, you really have to have excessive amounts of communication. You know, and uh, and I think, for example, just basic things like, you know, do, do you do you have student loans and how much are they? Right. Um, I think other little things, even worse than student loans, are when somebody has kids from a previous relationship or a divorce from a previous relationship. Well, that's financial weight that they're carrying into that next situation. So, you know, if you if you marry a guy that's got four kids with, with five, four women or whatever, not five women, five women can't make four kids, but four, you know, four, four kids with three women or something like that. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely moving into a communal situation, right? You've got multiple, he's got multiple spouses to some extent. And uh, the same thing is true. If a woman has kids, 
you know, my wife had kids when I married her and I mean, I love those kids. They, they work for me. If you buy my book, like they'll ship the book to you. Like they, they work with me and I, and I talk to them all the time and they're my buddies and we're really cool. Um, but you know, I had to factor that in and say, okay, do we have enough resources to kind of make this work and make it comfortable? And we did. Now, if I was uh, 28 years old, it would have been a different conversation I had to have with myself because that's a huge financial obligation, right? And so, so, so to some extent, um, and I'll say this last piece, then I'll be done. And you can ask me a question about it if you want to, but um, I really feel like there's too much, uh, there's too many hard, fast rules that people give about relationships. Like, you know, you should only be with a person if they make this much money, or you shouldn't be with a person if they if they don't make that much money or whatever. Like, like I don't know. Or I guess I said the same thing twice, but you get the point. Like, just kind of being over, or, or you shouldn't care about how much money a person makes. I've heard, heard people say that. And I think that's completely inconsistent with human nature. I think that um, that your, your goal that you're trying to survive here. And if I, you know, am trying to go one direction financially and you're not, that's going to be really, really hard to manage. It's going to be really, really hard to navigate. And, uh, and, and then what it does is it even shapes the types of people we're attracted to. You know, maybe a, a person uh, may be attracted to an older man because older men, you know, over 35 or whatever, have had a chance to make some money and have resources and provide some financial security. So if you grew up completely financially insecure and that was a source of stress for you, then it would actually be kind of natural for you to be attracted to somebody who can create stability where there typically is none. Right. And, uh, and, and and then even um, when we talk about just uh, what we will and won't deal with the non-negotiables and what I won't tolerate for and I'm not going to settle and all this other stuff. I, I think it's important to just consider the whole uh, equation because uh, because there are a lot of single parents that are really struggling financially. It's really, really hard to pay all the bills by yourself and take care of the kids and clean the house and everything. Just this weekend, my wife was was sick. And uh, and I like to think I was a hell of an asset. You know, I got up every morning. I made her breakfast. I told her, don't worry about the kids. The kids will be fed. I'm, I'm going to go get them in the bed and make sure that they're good. It was So I said, you stay in the bed and you don't think about anything except getting better. And so imagine if she was just doing this by herself. Then she'd be trying to do it all. And it, it would de- deteriorate her health and her mental health, physical health, all that stuff. So I personally think that we, uh, those people who are smart, are going to think about relationships differently from the from people who are not uh, as exposed to good ideas. I, I really do. I, I really think that you you probably want to like like when people say um, I I won't settle or whatever. I hear people say I'm not settling. I'm not settling. And, and men and women say that. Well, I'm not settling. I'm not letting no woman do this to me. Or I'm not settling. I'm not letting. No, I settle. I settle. I like I and I like that because that's what settling down is. Settling is when you say yeah. Um, I don't like this thing over here, but the good outweighs the bad. You know, I look at my marriage the same way I might look at a business. If you have a business, you will never, ever in your life ever run a business that always makes money and never loses money. You will never in your life have a business where you're not going to have high expenses that are going to compete with the income. You're never going to have a business that's like a paycheck. A paycheck is where it's, you know, you're receiving money. And it doesn't cost you anything to get that paycheck. You just you, you show up to work every day and you get the consistent same amount of money. And so you don't have to deal with expenses. If you go into business, though, you know that sometimes you win, sometimes you win some, you lose some. Right. You know, you're, you're going to sometimes you're, you're paying out money. Sometimes you're receiving money and you just hope that the, the, the income or the revenue exceeds the expenses. Right. That you're not operating at. A, and if you are operating at a loss, 
you don't destroy the business. You just say, okay, how do we fix this business? We either got to cut some expenses or increase the revenue. So I think marriage in a way, honestly, I think for empire builders, I encourage you to really think of your marriage and your relationships, not just your marriage, though, just all your relationships, kind of like a business, not to the point where you're a greedy capitalist and all you're thinking about is money all the time, but to the point where maybe you're thinking like, okay, my goal is to be uh, secure financially. Well, why? So I can uh, have peace. Why? Because peace makes me happy. Okay. So if you want to be happy and peaceful and secure, then you have to think about how your relationships fit into that. If you're taken away from that, then we can't do this. But if you're adding to this most of the time, if eight times out of 10, my wife is more of an asset to me than a liability, I'm not going to let that 20% of the time ruin the other 80%. Because if I do that and I say, oh man, she she was she was mean to me you know, for a whole month, I'm going to get a divorce and, and go find me some other random woman out here. Well, she's, it's going to be the same thing. It's not like, you know, it's not like I'm going to just go magically find this this person who's suddenly who's as perfect as my imagination uh, led me to believe. So so I would almost really say that in most of your relationships, I would look at them like a business. And in business, if you go into business or you become an investor, one of the things you must do is you must get accustomed to the idea of losing money sometimes. That's it. You, I don't know a single investor anywhere who has not had periods where they lost so much money that it made their stomach hurt. Warren Buffett has lost money. Uh, in McDonald's Corporation has lost money. A lot of people lose. So, 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 so this. So, I would say same thing is true in relationships. Um, it, it, I'm not worried so much about the cost. I'm really thinking: do the benefits exceed the cost? And they, and, and and do they exceed the cost most of the time? Right. So, if we operate at a loss in our marriage, right, where the 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 headaches are here. And the benefits are here. Well, then what do you do? You try to reduce the headaches and you let some time pass and then you increase the benefits and then you go back into the back into the um, into the black. OK, do you get what I'm saying? So so that's my little uh, rant there. I hope that that helps you in your uh, economic decision making, because I really don't know if we are. I think we because we live in a world where everybody just chases the person who's the cutest and who has the best sex and all these other stupid short-sighted things that we're trained to do. Um, I think that that causes us tremendous economic pain. And uh, and this is not just something I read in a book. Again, this is something I'm seeing in real life. I, I have a relative who just died from a drug overdose and his wife divorced him after many years of trying to manage a husband who had these sorts of issues, right? And so um, so this is real stuff. This is happening in a lot of our families, and you got to be able to negotiate that if you want to get ahead. Okay, so I'm going to make time for some Q&A now. Uh, put your question in the Q&A section if you're in the Zoom. I'm going to just jump in and answer this question. So, so who does the U.S. owe $32 trillion and what is it for? <laughs> well, the United States issues uh, treasury bills to fund the government, and anybody pretty much buys them from all over the world. People from you know other countries, people from the United States, corporations buy them, et cetera. Uh, so we just kind of owe it to anybody who, who owns those bills, because when they buy the T-bills, they have a right to cash flow from the government. And that's pretty much what it is. I mean, we, 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 we kind of owe everybody. We owe 32 trillion. It's kind of crazy. Otis says, can you expand, expound on the correlation between mass illegal Im immigration and the, and the stock market fluctuations that directly impact the black community? Correlation between mass immigration and stock market fluctuations that's an interesting question i haven't really thought about that connection very much um okay so let's try to let's try to logically 
compound a, a, a response here. Um, well, I think that immigration is interesting because when I went to Denmark, they, they're not real loose on immigration. They won't let you. Uh, I know a person who married a man from Denmark and had two kids with him. It took her seven years to get into the country. So every country doesn't let everybody in the way the United States does. Right. So don't ever think that that's the way that it has to be done. Um, and the, the, the people in Denmark, their feel, their general feeling is that excessive amounts of immigration will, will then naturally take their resources. They're like, we don't want to have people coming here or getting, getting on welfare, or even if they're working, they're still taking resources and we take care of our citizens. And the quality of life in Denmark is extremely high. The educational system is really good. You go to college, they give you money while you're going to college and it's, it doesn't cost hardly anything. There's a lot of really cool stuff that they do. So um, I think that that's the first thought that would come to mind if you talk about just excessive amounts of legal and illegal immigration. Now, on the brighter note, they would argue that having more workers in the economy can increase national productivity. And one thing about capitalism is that capitalism is always looking for more workers and the cheapest way to get it done. So the capitalists, meaning the people who own the corporations who are running the businesses, I would imagine they love immigration, legal and illegal. <coughs> because that gives them cheap labor. They love it for the same reason they love AI, cheap labor. Anybody that will come in and work harder than the person you've hired and work for less money is gonna help you make a bigger profit. So I don't think there is a general benefit to society at large for lots of immigration, but the people at the top, oh, they love it, they love it. Uh, and, and, and what does that do? Well, this is maybe where the stock market comes in. Well, the corporations are making bigger profits, stock prices go up, right? So. Maybe there's a connection there. I've never seen a study connecting the two, though. <clears throat> so I'm just kind of armchairing that one. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But that, those are my initial thoughts. Um, Dr. Boyce, I began my investing journey in February 2023. <clears throat> and things are going well. However, I've lost pretty much all of my 20 <clears throat> 2023 gains the past few weeks in August. I want to buy the dips when I'm concerned that this is normal in August, or should I wait for a leveling off before I buy? Okay. Um, why don't you put, tell me what you've been buying. Cause one thing I'll say, sorry, I'm choking. Give me a second, everybody. <coughs> sorry. Hold on. Why am I coughing so much? Sheesh. Okay. I'm back. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Sorry. All right. So, um, yeah, I think that I'd be curious to know what, what you bought. Um, one thing about investing is they say that in order to be um, consistent or properly diversified, you want to own at least 20 stocks, about 20, 22 to be precise. That was the number that they had, that they, that they state, they stated. And no, I don't have, I don't have the Rona. Uh, we took tests. So thank you very much though. I appreciate the, the concern. We are that already came and went. I already went through that stuff. That was not fun. Uh, all right. So let's see. Alicia Chan. So, yeah. So I would say make sure you're properly diversified if you're investing. Um, if you lost all your gains, it could be an imbalanced portfolio. So I would say a general rule of thumb, in my view, is I try not to have more than, say, seven to eight percent of my money in any particular stock. Um, I think that might be a good way to kind of look at it. Uh, Alicia says, what do you think about Qualcomm? Um, and Intel to invest in these tech companies that build and supply GPU chips that require for AI to run on. Yeah, I, I like Qualcomm. I, I do like that stock. And um, actually, um, there's a list of AI stocks that I have 
If you haven't done it yet, you can text the word stock to 31996. Um, if you text the word stock to 31996, I'll send you a list of AI stocks. Um, I think that immediately comes to you. So uh, feel free to test, uh, text that. All right. Um, what are municipal bonds? Municipal bonds are bonds that are issued by municipalities, by cities uh, to fund their operations. So uh, they tend to have tax benefits associated with them. Um, are, you're not going to get rich on municipal bonds. Uh, bonds, in fact, bonds don't really make people rich. Bonds help you kind of stay rich. They help you put your money in uh, safe places that are going to get you cash flow. But typically the people that buy bonds most of the time are people that either want minimal risk, maybe they're retirees or something like that, or they're very wealthy people. Um, let's see here. Uh, is AI stock programming a lazy way to trade? It depends on, I guess it depends on what algorithm is being used. I, I've heard some AI out there is pretty good at trading. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you see something that looks like it works, maybe you test it out with a little bit of money. And if you like it, then maybe you add a little bit more. Um, I could see AI being very good at trading. But the thing about trading is that um, trading is just not really, you know, like that sort of buy, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell stuff. That's really gunslinging. You know, it's not, I mean, they make it look glamorous on TV shows like Billions. But remember on Billions, the main character on the show Billions, he's an insider trader. He, he breaks the law. So, you know, so, so I don't really know if, if that's, you know, the best way to make that long-term uh, income that you're looking for, that long-term wealth. Uh, what do you think about getting uh, with a woman with 120K in student loan debt? Um, I think it depends on what your income level is and how much you love the woman. <laughs> and I, I think that if you're, um, you know, remember, everybody doesn't care about money at the same rate. For some people, you know, I like, I'll tell you, I, I honestly, I, I like money. Money's fine, but. I love my wife. I'd, I'd be in debt to be married to my wife. I'd be, I'd take a million dollars in debt to marry that lady, you know, cause I feel, cause I know enough about money to know that money isn't everything, you know? And, um, you know, but, you know, but then again, though, maybe that's not the most rational decision, but I don't think you have to make every decision rationally. I think that there should be room for you to make choices that are going to make you happy. I, I, but again, that's my bias. So that's my preference, right? So I don't want you to take what I say as the gospel. It's not gospel, it's a perspective, right? And, and it's, a, it's a perspective based on some exposure and analysis and insight, but it's not, it's still a perspective. There's still a little bit of bias in there or, or voices in there, right? So, so just remember that. But yeah, I, I, I don't, don't let me tell you who to marry. Don't let anybody tell you who to marry, shoot. I'm telling you, I, I, <laughs> I, had, uh, my, I had an aunt one time who, uh, saw me like this with this girl that I was dating or I wasn't dating her. I kind of liked her, but I was kind of nervous about dating her. I wasn't sure if she was the right, right fit. I was in my twenties and, and my aunt said, I think you like her. Why don't you just go date her? And I was like, no, I don't know. I don't because blah, 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 blah. And she said, no, I, I know you like her and she likes you and y'all you, you should get together. So I was like, oh, okay, sure. You know? And, and so, so for some reason hearing my aunt tell me I should date this person made me date this person. So I dated this lady. We dated for a like, about four years. And then after we got done and I was kind of like salty about how it ended, it didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. I remember telling my aunt about it years later, like five, six years later, I was like, yeah, well, you know, I only dated her because you told me to. And she said, I never told you to do that. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you did. 
And she's like, I never said that. I told I told you not to date that girl. She's trifling. And so so what I learned from that experience is that it takes nothing for somebody to give you advice that literally will change the next several years of your life. Right? You're sitting there, you're trying to decide, do I want to be a carpenter or an engineer? And your uncle is sitting there with a beer in his hand, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner. And he's like, you need to be an engineer, boy. Yeah, you know, don't nobody want to be no damn carpenter. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to be an engineer because Uncle Willie, like, tipped the scale in that direction. So next thing you know, you spend the next 25, 30 years of your life doing a certain profession that you may not even enjoy because your Uncle Willie had a beer in his hand and told you to become an engineer. Whereas if he had said be a carpenter, you would have spent 30 years being a carpenter. That's a hell of a butterfly effect. Right. So so I would encourage you to be aware of those butterfly effects and not let them affect. Seriously, if for major decisions, I think they should be made by you. That's it, period, because you're going to be the one that's going to have to live with that. So that's my thought on that. All right. Uh, thoughts on VTI versus VOO. Uh, I know what uh, Ian, I know what VOO is. Um, that's that Vanguard fund. That's really good. I like VOO. That's what we do for the five dollar a day plan. Um it's at my website, boycewalkins.com. There's a lot of stuff in my website. We change stuff out all the time, so feel free to go to boycewalkins.com and you can find it there. Uh, VTI, VTI is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Nice. I don't know much about it, but I like it. Um, let's see here. Uh, I'm looking to see what's in the VTI. Hmm. I mean, if it's called the Total Stock Market Index Fund, that's that's pretty ex expansive. I, I like stuff like that because that allows you to invest without overthinking it, right? You don't have to go stock picking and all this other stuff. Um, let me see what let me see what's in. I'm trying to figure out what's in. Here we go. Uh, the weightings of VTI are 2.4% basic materials, 10% consumer cyclicals, 12% uh, financial services, 3% real estate. Okay. Uh, let me see what companies are in here. Oh, I mean... You know, you got Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA. Can't go wrong with those companies. Remember, I think that if you're talking about making money, it's like, um, you know, remember when you were little and if you were hanging with the wrong crowd, your mother would be like, don't hang with the wrong crowd because when they go to jail, you're going to go to jail too. Well, you know, if you hang with the right crowd, then good things can happen too. You know, you hang out with uh, people that are going to be successful and make money, then chances are you're going to be successful too. That's why people go to Ivy League schools. People people don't go to Ivy League schools to, just to learn because you can learn all that stuff on the internet a lot of times. <clears throat> they go to Ivy League schools because of who you're around. And like my brother took the time, you know, when he became an entrepreneur, he was already making, he already had already made over a million dollars as an entrepreneur. There was absolutely no reason for him to go back and get an MBA, no reason for him to even consider getting a job. In fact, when he graduated from his MBA, he didn't even, he didn't even interview for any jobs. He just went to Cornell to network. So he spent two years at Cornell. And when I tell you, that he was then connected with billionaires, like people that eventually went on to become billionaires and, or they were the sons or daughters of billionaires. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, the network was amazing. So, uh, so why do I say that? Well, same thing is true. Maybe you can't go to Cornell and network with the billionaires, but you can network with the, the corporations that are, that are for sale right there on the stock market. Uh, this is one of the beauties of, of the financial democracy that we have in the society where you can buy VTI, and I like, in case you want to know if I like VTI, I like it. I like VOOM VTI. I, I don't like one more than the other, to be honest with you. It's a preference thing. Uh, but you can buy those companies, and think about this. You, you now own a piece of Microsoft. You now own a piece of NVIDIA. You now own a piece of Apple. When people, when they sell iPhones, that's a little bit, that's like one, 
one thousandth of a penny going in your pocket, right? When somebody buys an iPhone, right? Or whatever, out of one millionth of a penny. But still, <clears throat> your income, your wealth is correlated and connected with the companies that are best at making money in this society. So you don't have to figure out how to make money yourself necessarily. You just take the income you have and connect your wealth with their wealth and your wealth will grow because I don't care what happens in America, they're never going to stop letting rich people get rich and stay rich. They will never, the rich will never concede their power to the poor for something as simple as like a vote or something like <laughs> democracy, right? You really think they're going to let you vote them out of power? Do you really think? No, they're not going to do that at all, ever. All right. So anyway, uh, what happened to your old account? Uh, I don't talk about it. My old Instagram account, they, they took it down. I don't know. I'm so uncontroversial. I have no idea why they would do that. I'm kidding. I was reading a Dr. Claude Anderson book, um, Black Labor, White Wealth, and I was talking about affirmative action and how white females um, are the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action. So I think someone reported that as hate speech uh, against white women. And so because in, in Facebook's terms of services, they literally say you cannot single out any ethnic group of people in your commentary. So I believe that I... I mean, that's what I do. I talk about black people all the time. So even that, according to Facebook's terms of services, can be defined as hate speech. So effectively, um, I'm just, you know, I'm moving, I'm doing stuff on Telegram and all that now. So uh, if you want to connect with me on Telegram, just go to drboystelegram.com. And I do still have a little Instagram page. They don't know, I guess they don't know about it or something. But anyway, it's Dr. Boyce Finance. So if you still want to follow me on Instagram, you can follow me there. But I'm actually, I actually found myself quite relieved to not be on Facebook. I don't know why. I just, I, I got opportunities to come back and I was like, I don't think I really want to. I actually kind of like not having that in my life. Right. So I still have my team on Facebook. They're still doing stuff on our pages. We have a bunch of pages, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm doing something else. All right. So Sandy Green, Dr. Boyce, what is the early stage to open a stock for children on the $5 a day plan? <clears throat> the early stage Sandy is to get your child started when it comes to investing is uh, <clears throat> the earliest age. Uh, would be um, negative 10 years old, 10 years before they're born. Uh, but actually, no, that's not the earliest age. The earlier age would be negative 11 years old. No, 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 no. Actually, negative 11 is not the earliest. Let's go to negative 12. No, no, no. Let's go to negative 13. And why am I saying that? I sound stupid when I say this, but here, here's why I'm saying it. There's there's no such thing as too early. And, uh, and I'm not saying give your child control of their money. I don't believe kids should have control of large amounts of money because kids are just crazy and stupid and they do ridiculous things. Like, you know, the 16-year-old the, the we have that works for me, that, sh that will be, sh if you buy my books, like she'll ship it to your house. She's super smart, super, uh, you know, intelligent, organized, all that stuff. But she's got this boyfriend, you know, and he's a nice guy, but, you know, I wouldn't give her control of a bunch of money because she might do something crazy, like give a bunch of it to her boyfriend, you know, or whatever. And then I'd have to kill him. Then we'd all, I'd be going to jail and that would be just bad for everybody. So instead of, of sending myself to jail by giving her all this money early, what we do is we just manage it for her until she gets to a point where she is able to manage it herself. And that might be like 28 years old. I like 28. I don't know why I like 28, but anyway, um, you know, because the other thing too is if you give your kids too much too early, I think you're taking away uh, their opportunity to um, to develop the same energy and drive that you develop by being hungry. You know, like remember when you give your kids everything and give them all the stuff you never had, you're taking away things that you did have. You're taking away a privilege you had, which was the privilege of going through your struggle. And your struggles what made you great. Your struggles what brought you here. So for some of you, for a lot of you. 
So, um, so I just believe in letting them, letting them kind of go through the struggle, letting them kind of fight. And then I get to sit back as a guardian angel and I'm just sitting on the phone like, so how's it going? Oh, it's so hard. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, wow. Well, well, good luck. Well, you need some advice? No, no. Okay. Well, well, let me know how it goes. Right. So, but I'm watching, I'm monitoring, right. So that it doesn't get too bad. I'm, you know, you watching the guardrails to make sure that they don't, that nothing falls off a cliff. And then what happens is that when they score those little touchdowns or they need that little boost, you can pop in as the fairy godfather and say, oh, you're trying to buy your first house. Well, here's $8,000 toward your first home, right? Because you've already done a lot of the work. Let me do a little bit more. Oh, you want to take, you want to go to Europe and travel? This is real, real life stuff. This is what I really did with my kids, right? Oh, you want to go to Europe and travel? Okay. Uh, you saved up 2000 but you need four? Okay, well, let me get, I'll loan you the other two. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, really, I'm going to give you the other two. But I want you to think it's a loan because I want you to process and figure out how you're going to pay it back, right? Because I want you to struggle. I want you to hustle, right? I want you to meet me halfway, and then we can really go do this thing. We can really go conquer this thing instead of me just doing everything for you and then you not being appreciative and and and, and you being weakened and broken and incapable of doing anything on your own. And then to that point, I've kind of cursed you. So um, the $5 day plan, you know, I've talked to teenagers about this. Who didn't have who were eight years, ten years away from having kids. I said, Yeah, if you start investing now, I said, You're gonna have kids one day, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the more time, the more of a running start you get. Like I'm thinking about Shakari Richardson, who by the way, just became the fastest woman on the planet. Well, she you know, she runs the hundred meter dash and she barely won by like a micro inch. She barely beat Sharika Jackson from Jamaica. It was a beautiful race. I was so happy for her. Well, you know, imagine if Shakari had gotten like a running start. If she gotten a running start, she would have been so far ahead that nobody would have caught. Like, they would have had a chance to catch her, right? In fact, last year, the women's 4 by 100 meter relay team won the gold medal against the Jamaicans. And if you remember, T.T. Terry ran the last leg for the United States, and Sharika Jackson was, like, chasing her down, like, literally hunting her down like a, like a dog chasing a rabbit through the woods, and, and, and she couldn't catch her. Why didn't she not catch her? She didn't catch her because T.T. Terry had a head start. She had a running start, right? So even though she wasn't running as fast, Sharika could not catch her. So imagine if Shakari had a running start. She would have won that race by 15, 20 meters. Why do I say that? Well, because when you start investing for your kid early as much as possible, when you're doing it consistently, not overthinking it, you know, Victor, Oscar, Oscar every week, VTI, SPY, those are some of the stocks you could pick, right? Every week, just autopilot, autopilot, autopilot. And you're doing this when they're negative 10 years old. Well, guess what? By the time they are 30, that child is sitting on over a million dollars. They are a 30-year-old with a million dollars in the bank. Can't nobody tell them nothing. Can't nobody tell them nothing. And all that happened was way back in 2023, somebody in their family cared enough about them to make a plan for their success. That's all, that's all that has to occur, right? So, so ultimately, uh, I would not, if you have grandkids, it's a great gift for your grandkids. Uh, BoyceWalkins.com. Go to BoyceWalkins.com. I have it right there. You can feel free to take a look at it. And, uh, and it's an easy play. It's an easy win for your kids. Uh, let's see. Next, uh, I have great-grands <clears throat> that age from infants to toddlers. And how about to start their account in their name or their parents' name because they are under the age of 18? Yeah, I would start it in some adult's name. So 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 I think custodial accounts, if you give them a custodial account in their name, which you can do, I would put a limited amount of money in the custodial account. But the big money should be controlled by the responsible adults or by a trust or something like that. I, I do not you do I do not give lots of money to children. Uh, Ian Cardi, 
Should we wait and go through your investing course until we start dealing with options, or would you recommend jumping right into options as well? You can do either one. Uh, if you're in the Prime program, which is drboysprime.com, we have all the stock market stuff available and all the stock option stuff available from beginning to middle to, to, to advanced. All that stuff is available to you. It's totally up to you. I recommend some understanding of stocks before you dive into options because you want to understand the parent before you start learning about the kids, right? You want to understand the source before you start understanding the the extension, the derivatives, because options exist only because stocks exist. If the stock market is gone, then there really pretty much is no options market, at least not that particular side of the options market. So, so options, in my view, are kind of seen as more of an advanced version of stocks. So think I think of options like the way you, if you go into a restaurant, the, the stocks might be the food that's on your plate. The options might be like the ketchup and the mustard and the salt and the pepper, the condiments, the spices, right? That spice up the food. If there is no food, you can't make a whole, you can't make a meal with just ketchup and mustard and, and mayonnaise, right? It's kind of, it's kind of, it's not going to taste that good. All right. So let's see. Um, does it matter how many years, how many shares you buy of a company? <clears throat> no, it doesn't. Uh, you just do what you can. If I buy one share of a company each week, or should I focus on the amount of shares to buy weekly? It does not matter. It does not matter. It does not matter. I know people that invest $10 a week, $20 a week. Um, but what I, what I really say to people is, is don't cheat yourself by um, underselling yourself, right? Like I would literally take the thing in your life that you are comfortable spending money on. Like think of something that you do where you're okay with dropping a couple of dollars on it. Like, like it, whether it's going to out to out to eat into the movies or going to the mall or going on vacation or spending money on your car note or going to buy a coach purse. Like what are, what are some examples? Where are some areas where you're like, you know, I'm okay with spending money on this. Um, I would then match just, Whatever you're doing, whatever you're living your best life over here, match your investment with that same level. Live your best life over here. Because because here, here you're living your best life today. But if you're investing, you're living your best life 5, 10, 20 years from now. You're, you're living an even better life as time goes on. So so maybe a good measuring state might be, let's say I really like to have a nice car. And I decide I want to be like, like the other millions of Americans. I want to get me a brand new car. And my car note's going to be $750 a month. That's the average new car note right now. I think or about $723, something like that. Well, you know, then maybe a way to alleviate that guilt might be to say, I'm going to make sure I invest the same amount of money that I'm giving over to that car dealer. Because that car dealer is investing your money. That car dealer is taking that money and doing exactly what we talk about in this class. They're taking that money. They're not They're not going to spend it and give it all away. They're going to take that money. They're going to invest it somewhere. It's going to grow, and that's going to become an asset for somebody else. If you pay a $750 car note over you know, a 10-year period, that is an insanely large amount of money. In fact, let me do, if I, I could probably do the math really quickly, that's actually five times the $5 day plan. So the $5 day plan after, 20, after 10 years comes out to about $29,000. So you take 29,000 times five. So you're getting a number that is almost 150,000. So they're going to make about 140,000 or so off of that money that you're putting in there. So my belief is that you should do what, do what I do when it comes to working out. Um, I eat like a fat person. I do. I, I can't help it. I just like good food. Um, I got Twizzlers in my cab, in my cabinet. I got, so I, I, I eat a lot of stuff. A lot of I know a lot of y'all are really into health and stuff. And I, I listen to you. I promise you. But I grew up eating crappy food. I just did, you know, and that's just how we live, right? And, I, and I've let some of that go, but I haven't let it all go. 
right? But here's what I do. You know what I do? I, I'll make myself a banana split about once or twice a week. And, uh, and what I just promised myself is I say, we're going to work our butts. We're going to work out like crazy tomorrow to make up for the banana split. Now, is that the best way to go? No. If I didn't eat the banana split at all, maybe I'd look like an Olympic athlete now, right? No body fat at all. But that works for me. I'm happy with that. That's the balance that 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 gives me a good quality of life because I enjoy, I like my banana splits, right? So if you have your financial version of a banana split, you have your little guilty pleasure, you have your little thing you want to spend money on, and, and I, I think you can do that with no judgment at all. I'm just asking you to simply create a little add-on. You know, just just like like the way I go to the gym after I eat my banana splits, um, invest the same amount of money that you waste. If you like to spend money at the club, just invest that same amount. If you spend money on fast food, invest the same amount you just spend on fast food. You go buy McDonald's of food, well, well, buy some McDonald's stock while you're in line waiting for your food. I think that will get you. Um, I think that that will get you where you want to get to. Now, uh, somebody says, "You, doctor, you have to listen to health experts just like we listen to you." Yeah, yeah, I listen to them, but I think I think it's the same thing. Is I think financial health and physical health are very similar in the sense that, you know, I don't think you have to be super strict on yourself. I I don't believe in living life without being happy. I like to be happy. I just do. I like to be comfortable. I like to enjoy what I'm doing. You know, um, there's probably even things I could be doing. I imagine that I where they could make me more money, but they would not give me more joy. So I don't want to do those things. You know, um, I like I like doing this. I like my job. You know, I like talking to you. This is this is fun for me, right? So, um, so 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 just find that balance, whatever works for you. All right. So I'm answer three more questions, and then uh, we'll be done for today. Uh, let's see. What is your system to win sixty percent or more at stock option trading, high level? Um, system. Uh, you know what? I think systems. I, I take them with a grain of salt. I mean, they, they do have processes where as soon as the loss gets below a certain amount, you go ahead and you sell, right? You sell to prevent yourself from getting the loss. Or as soon as the gain hits a certain amount, maybe you, you sell at that point. Um, that can happen, uh, but we don't operate in those kinds of systems. Uh, when we do What we do in Prime is we just generate consistent income by selling stock options every week. So you own the asset. Uh, you buy some put options to protect yourself against the downside. And then every single week you sell the calls and generate the income. And you focus on the income generation more so than simply the capital accumulation or the other growth in the capital value, because the capital gains may come and go, but the ownership of those units of stock is never going to change. So, for example, if I own an apartment building and I have 100 doors and those 100 doors generate, um, you know, and those 100 doors generate for me $2,500 a month and I make 2500 times a hundred, a quarter million dollars a month. Is that right? Damn, that's a big number. Wait, it's my 25, yeah, a quarter million dollars a month on those hundred doors. Why do I feel like that math isn't right? That seems like a massive number, right? But I've got a hundred doors that generate a massive amount of money, a quarter million dollars a month. Well, the value of my property is gonna go up and down, but really I'm looking at the cash flow I'm getting from the rent. So even as the property value goes up and down, I'm still generating a pretty consistent amount of cash from that asset, from owning that asset. Right. I'm not thinking about selling it right away. So you can do stock options kind of the same way that you do uh, real estate property. But the difference, though, with options, though, is that the options that pay the most money tend to have a little more volatility. But you can actually buy company. You can do you can run that strategy with companies like Microsoft, and which is a very stable company and generate an income level that's far higher from an ROI perspective than you would get from owning property. Right. So uh, if I have, you know, an extra 
$350,000 or something that I can get access to. And, and let's say, or let's say I can put up half of it, right? Because you can get margin trading where you can get half of that money given to you or, or loaned to you through margin. Um, if I have that 350K available, I'd almost rather buy 350K worth a thousand shares of Microsoft stock, which might generate me, I don't know, eight or $9,000 a month. I'd rather do that than buy a property and rent the property, which might generate me, you know, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 a month. Okay, so um, I'm not telling you what to do, but it's just something that it's worth thinking about. And so if you want to take a look at that or that is of interest to you, uh, you can go to boyswalkins.com. There's a training there called How to Make Money Without Working. So feel free uh, to go take a look at that on my website. Uh, or you can also text the word stock to 31996. Um, I, I hope to send you things that will add value to your life. All right. Um, Last couple questions. Sandy says the NVIDIA NVIDIA is down today and the analyst opinions are leaning toward a buy. What are your thoughts on the stock today? I like NVIDIA as a long-term investment. And that's my answer on NVIDIA. I just think NVIDIA right now is kind of in the driver's seat of AI. AI is going to rule the future. Uh, hopefully they won't mess it up. Um, I think NVIDIA is a great company. Uh, Beverly Jones, I have stash and every week they give you small amounts of stock. Is it best to put money in these stocks or buy other stocks? Um, I don't know which stocks they're giving you, Beverly, but I think that the idea of diversification is, is great because it doesn't require a lot of figuring things out. You know, it, it literally you can um, you can randomly they, they did that. I always talk to you guys about that book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel, where he trained monkeys how to invest. And the monkeys were just throwing darts at a wall and just randomly picking stocks. And even by randomly picking stocks, I kid you not, <laughs> the monkeys had this basket of stocks, like 25 or 30 stocks. And they made money. They made money because that's how um, it's called the efficient markets hypothesis. That's what if you're in, so if you're interested, you can Google it. The efficient markets hypothesis. Uh, that's a great um, thing to kind of understand generally. And what it kind of does is it reminds me of this verse E40 had one time. E40 is one of my favorite rappers. I don't know E40. I wish I could meet him. I know people that know him. I met his. I know his sister Sugar T, but uh, I don't know E40. Uh, anyway, uh, he had this song where he says, "God protects babies and fools." Right. And, uh, and, and, and and the efficient markets hypothesis is kind of the same way. The efficient markets hypothesis protects babies and fools when it comes to investing. And what it basically means is that, generally speaking, stock prices receive, they, they sort of impound all the available, publicly available information about that stock. So if you go to the market and you're blindly sort of picking a basket of stocks and you're just picking, let's say you're just picking from the S&P 500, right, instead of picking like, you know, these, uh, what do you call it? These, um, uh, you know, these penny stocks and all those other stuff. People go, let's say you're sticking with the mainstream companies. You just randomly pick, you're like, okay, I'm gonna buy some Apple today. I'm gonna buy some Google today. I'm buy some Microsoft today. Well, the efficient markets hypothesis kind of protects you because maybe financially you may not be a fool. Nobody in here is a fool. I wouldn't call anybody in here a fool, but you might be a baby. Well, the efficient markets hypothesis, like E40 says, it protects babies and fools. So uh, basically, it means that that person who literally is randomly picking S&P 500 stocks can still do much better than the person who sits to the side and says, I don't think I want to invest because I don't know what's going on. I don't understand how this stuff works. No, no, because what's happened is that that person who the, the, the baby or even the fool who's just, who's not overthinking it, who's just grant, grant, grabbing S&P 500 companies and adding them to their basket every week. Well, that person has created what is referred to as an investment vehicle. And an investment vehicle is just like a regular vehicle that drives you down the car. They, they have a vehicle, right? Their vehicle might be, it might be a, a 1999 Toyota Corolla, 
but that vehicle is always going to be better than walking on foot. So if you are a person who goes to work every day and tries to save your way to wealth in a society where wages are dropping, the cost of everything's going up, you are literally a person who is entering into a drag race on foot. And, and it's hard to run fast enough to outrun a Toyota Corolla. Even a, so even a raggedy car will outrun you. It's just so, so if you just assume that the car works and people don't drive it off a cliff or you don't drive backward, then they're going to be way ahead of you. That person that doesn't work nearly as hard as you is going to be ahead of you. And so don't ever make a mistake. Somebody says, oh, Andre says E40 is a good friend of his. He can make that. Yeah, well, tell him to call me. My email address, manager at voicewalkins.com. Manager at voicewalkins.com. I will tell him we played his song at our wedding. Me and my wife, we're, we're ghetto like that. We we played, uh, he has this great song called Choices. You know, nope, yep. You know, anybody know that song? Nope, yep. Anyway, we played that. And um, my friend, um, I do have a friend. I have, I have all these rapper friends. I, it's kind of weird. But my friend Willie D, who was in the ghetto boys, he was actually in my wedding. He's one of my groomsmen. And he said, he said, yeah. He said, I didn't know you were going to play an E-40 song at your wedding. I could have got him to call you. I could have got him on the phone. And I was like, oh, well, you should have done that. I've been a fan of his for a long time. And what I like about him, too, since we're going to, let's finish up. Let's finish the conversation with E-40. So just the, shout out to him. Because I, I think that there's wisdom in a lot of places, right? A lot of times, unfortunately, what I hear from the rappers is not necessarily pro-wealth. It's not uh, economically beneficial, right? We've talked about this. I talk about this a lot in my book, The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power, that bad culture um, you know, is, is heavily promoted and that leads to bad economic outcomes. But one thing about E40 um, is that there's a lot that you could critique, I'm sure. But the one thing about uh, about him that I've always admired is that he's always been an entrepreneur uh, in terms of explaining how the hip hop music industry extracts so much wealth from artists, especially young artists, and gives them nothing back. Uh, in fact, he had a song called uh, to, to Whom It May Concern. You should go listen to it. And he basically says when they use you up, <clears throat> they'll just find a new a new black person next year. He's, he uses the N word, but he says they're gonna find a new one next year, and uh, and that's that's what I see as well, right? Uh, but then also he's been an entrepreneur for a long time, and uh, and one thing about him is that this guy has been able to make music for thirty years, thirty years, even when he wasn't hot, even when his music wasn't on the radio, he was always making music and 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 making money somehow. And it was, and a lot of it was because he didn't have to worry about whether his label was going to sign him for another album or not. He signed himself. He signed himself. So, so to be, you know, so the beauty of being an entrepreneur. This is why I'm a big advocate. I hope I can convince you to consider making sure all your children understand how to start a business when they're young. Is is that an entrepreneur? You don't have to be super successful to really get these amazing benefits that come from just being free. Right? You, you don't have to go make a billion dollars. You can. I enjoyed my life as an entrepreneur long before I started making money. Even when the money was dry, I loved doing the work I wanted to do. I loved being my own boss. I loved waking up when I wanted to wake up. I loved being able to walk away from things that I didn't want to be a part of. And uh, and that is that's a huge part of it too, you know. So and, and then also most importantly, I had the ultimate job security because I knew I would never fire me. I would never give up on me. And then the other piece, and again, I, I, I talk about this in my book. It's on my website, voicewalkers.com. But, but the, the other thing I mentioned in the book too is that if you can then find other people around you that maybe are from your family, you have the right family culture, and you find other people around you who believe in you as much as you believe in you, 
then that really creates the ultimate job security. So, and, and this is not me uh, theorizing. This is not me just sort of talking. This is real life. My brother has stood by me through thick and thin. He has stood by me when I made millions of dollars. He stood by me when my truck got repossessed. <laughs> he stood by me through, uh, through times where everyone loved me. He stood by, through, by me through times when everyone hated me. And that was wonderful in terms of added job security because I knew that he would never stop being an investor in what I'm what what I was trying to do. And that's important because, well, why is that? Well, because most big major corporations in America, they exist because they have investors that believe in them, starting with the bank, uh, starting with, with people in the stock market. And when those investors stop believing in those companies, they pull the rug out from under them. So it doesn't matter how good your ideas are or how hard you're working at that point. You're, you're, what you're doing is done. It's gone. You know, banks, runs on banks are a good example of this. Whenever you, or if you see a company fail because its investors pull out or the banks won't loan it money anymore, that's similar to a run on a bank. It's just a simple loss of confidence where people say, I'm not, you know, you're not, mm -mm, give me my money back. I'm not, I'm not participating in this anymore. Right. So effectively, um, I think that for black folks, in fact, let's go even further. When you lose your job, even though you work extremely hard and you have all the credentials and you're very, very talented, or if you're an artist and you lose your deal, even though you've got your best album inside of you, but the label still won't invest in you anymore. That's the same concept. That's all that is, is a run on the bank. In that particular case, you are the bank. They've lost confidence in you. And when they lose confidence in you, they don't invest in you. And when they don't invest in you, then that kills the possibility of anything happening that could be good in your life at that point, economically speaking, right? But if you control that source, right? If you are the entrepreneur, if the business comes out of your family, if the business, if you, the people around you that you're working with are people who just know who you are and believe in you, no matter what, through thick and thin, that creates a kind of um, security and peace and 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 and, and sturdiness to your economic situation that you don't get when you are leaning on corporate America or uh, uh, some white guy or Hollywood or the music industry to keep investing in you. Do you follow what I'm saying? I hope that this makes sense, right? Like this, that's what it's so, so think about these sorts of things um, when you're talking about how to manage your economic reality. There's a million ways to skin that cat. I just I, I want you to make sure your kids don't know just one way. I want them to know all the ways and be able to understand all the variables so that nothing surprises them. So that when something goes wrong, they're not sitting there in shock because they thought they had job security when really they didn't. Corporate America doesn't provide job security anymore. You have to find that yourself. All right. So I hope this conversation was helpful. I hope this this class was beneficial to you. Um, I, I, I appreciate uh, hanging out with you all. And uh, yeah, I saw somebody said they missed the book club. Yeah, uh, we're going to do the last stock options training camp tomorrow night uh, during the book club time. Uh, but and then after and actually, you know, I'm going to do one more meeting, but it won't be during book club time. So I'll probably schedule it on the weekend or something like that. But I owe you guys an extra class. So we're going to do actually three meetings for the training camp. If you still want to join us, uh, you can go uh, go to the Telegram page, drboystelegram.com, or you can text the word stock to 31996. I'll send out the link. Uh, right before we meet for class tomorrow. And also uh, on my website, voicewalkins.com, there's lots of good resources there. Uh, the $5 day plan is there. Uh, the training on how to make money without working is there. Uh, you can get tickets to the All Black National Convention there. There's all Everything's pretty much there, my website. So feel free to go there. All right, so have a good day, everybody. I will see you all next week. We will meet next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Mark that on your calendar. And I hope you all have a great day and God bless you. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.